Corinthians chapter 4. Yes, sir. It was a worthwhile interruption for sure. That's uh, and it's really not an interruption because it's someone being moved by the Spirit, sharing his story, encouraging the whole body. So it's a beautiful thing. Amen. Well, here we are. We're uh, we're walking with Paul um, through his letter, his first letter to the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul's moving on. We can call this part two that we started last week. Um, where he's moving on to some practical implications of a life that reflects that it's received the message of Jesus, a life that reflects that this gospel of Jesus has really found a home in that life and that heart. Uh, the framework of this life walk, as we, I mentioned last week, sometimes when Paul uses this word that you should live this way, it's literally walk, that you should walk this way is not simply, as we talked about last week, a a religious set of do's and don'ts. Uh, But the framework, rather, is this this vital relationship that we've entered into with this God that saves us. The very relationship that that, uh, Rich was just talking about. That that God led him step by step, that was faithful and merciful in his life, to come into a very real vital relationship with God through Jesus. Um, And it's, it's, as as we come into that relationship... We should look to please the Lord as a a son would toward his father. And we do that by living under what we talked about last week, under the authority of Jesus as Lord. Uh, Last week we reflected on the call for our sexuality to come under the lordship of Jesus. Having both a high and healthy view of sex as God has created it, but also taking seriously the call not to abuse it not to abuse what God has created to be sacred. So this week we'll consider how that relationship with God under the authority of Jesus should shape our attitude toward our growing love for one another in the church and also toward what what, what some may feel are the kind of the mundane rhythms of everyday life, the mundane rhythms of your everyday work life. So we're just going to look at verses 9 through 12 out of chapter 4, of 1 Thessalonians. I'll read it through. Paul continues, he says, Now, about brotherly love we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. This is actually, if I could pause, it's interesting when you read some folks that are really good at understanding structure and grammar and the original language. This is actually a bit of a a literary device where it looks like Paul is going to skip over this topic, but then he actually still speaks to it. He says, uh, we, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, And to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So those are the few verses we're going to consider this morning. And this beautiful, 
this beautiful take that Paul speaks of in, that affects both the, ins, the inside, if you will, of the church community and also outwardly our reputation toward others in our daily life. So, it, so how would you encourage a particularly loving Christian community? If you're Paul, you, you affirm and acknowledge this, this be- their beautiful attentiveness in this area, but then you tell them, do it more and more. And, and it, it, you may think, you might, it's like, Paul, come on. is good never good enough for you? So you're saying to this congregation, you're doing a really good job at loving one another. He's already said this to them. So here's my counsel. Do it more and more. Let it increase in your lives. It's not that Paul is saying you're always falling short, but he's rather saying that there's always growth to be had in love. You never arrive. There's always growth to be had in love. Uh, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, you may be growing in knowledge. There's, there's plenty of people that are really diligent to grow in knowledge of the Lord. But if you aren't growing in love, you simply aren't growing in Christ. That might sound like a bold statement, but I think it's very true. If you aren't growing in love, you aren't growing in Christ. And growing in Jesus Christ cannot happen in isolation. It happens within the context of Christian community. And in contrast to what Paul just wrote about kind of the selfish desires of sexual immorality that that seizes and possesses with body or mind, Paul now points again to love, which selflessly gives for the benefit of others. Here Paul uses the word Philadelphia, this this word that may be translated in many of your English Bibles as brotherly love. And it's a love in their culture that would have very much brought to their mind kind of a familial love. It's a love of family. It's a love between people that have the same DNA. That's how it would have been understood in in these cultures, Philadelphia, brotherly love. But here Paul is applying it to those who share the same spiritual DNA, to people that are bound together by blood, the blood of Jesus. I've heard heard some Christians um, who seem very longing (laughs) to love people on the other side of the world. And that's not a bad thing. And I've known Christians who want to love some neighbor out there somewhere in the broader community. That's a good thing. But I've seen some of those Christians have the same, at the same time have very little time and very little love for people that they sit next to in church week after week. And scripturally, that is painfully backward. Painfully backward. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, right? He's speaking to his disciples, if you what? Love one another. Now, I tell you, listen here, because it's important. Some people want that verse to read, by this, all men will know you're my disciples, 
if you love people outside the church. <laughs> people are like, what? Aren't I supposed to love people outside the church? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we are supposed to have a love and a heart for gospel mission to those who are, do not yet know Christ. That's critically important. Critically important to who we are as Christians, to be a people of mission, a people of love to those who do not know the Lord. We're called ambassadors of the gospel, as though God were speaking through us. But yet Jesus does not say, by this all men you'll know my disciples if you love those outside the church. He says, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It's always easier to love someone far away. But it's in the church that your love is tested and proved and refined with brothers and sisters. To love someone outside the family of God, beautiful. But to love someone outside of the family of God while withholding that same love from those inside the family of God, in God's eyes, is seen as a travesty, is seen as a mockery, is seen as a false representation, inconsistent with the true nature of knowing the God who has so loved us as a family. This God, Paul says, himself teaches us to love one another. And he seems to be speaking of the Holy Spirit of God that, that has opened up our hearts to receive the love of God, to know the love of God. The Apostle John writes, we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. That's a strong phrase, right, folks? If anybody says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he, gives, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if I say, oh man, I love God. I am desperately in love of God. I love Jesus, but I can't stand those Christian people that I have to call brothers and sisters. I can't stand those, those hypocrites. I can't stand, right? If I have that attitude, the Lord is saying, with that attitude, I'm proving that I do not love him. If I can't love those he loves. It's so easy to say we love a God that we cannot see. It's so easy to say we want to love people that we do not know. But true love, a love that befriends, a love that forgives, restores, forbears, a love that covers a multitude of sins, that refuses to hold a grudge, that refuses to keep a list of wrongs, to slander, to gossip, a love that is slow to anger, a love that serves and helps and is hospitable, that is kind and patient and humble, truthful and hopeful, prayerful, encouraging, exhorting, that's compassionate, that stands up for the oppressed, that listens, that is present, is faithful, is enduring, that extends oneself, that shares, 
that works out difficulties, that sacrifices, that is exceedingly generous, right? And I can go on and on. A love like that, a God love, is a love that's first worked out in the family. And in this context, your spiritual family. And then it seems that, that it is, it's, it's expected that as it's worked out in family, it will then overflow into all your other relationships. And again, what Paul is saying here is that this love, this kind of love, must constantly move forward. Stand still on love and you'll find yourself moving backward. Stand still on love. I think I've arrived. I think I've gotten there. I think I love enough. And you won't even realize it. You're regressing. Catherine Ann Porter once wrote, Love must be learned and learned again and again. There is no end to it. Hate needs no instruction, but waits only to be provoked. As soon as you rest on your laurels with love, it declines. I thought it was interesting. Anybody know why we say rest on your laurels? Have you said that before? You've never said it? Don't rest on your laurels? Is that an old school? Yeah, don't rest on your laurels. So, have you heard it? Is that, okay, so, yeah. To rest on your laurels, what's actually being referenced there actually traces back to ancient Greece. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul speaks of a crown. And what it, a, lot of your, a lot of your translations, it's translated a crown. But what it's actually speaking of is the laurel wreath of a victor that has run a race that has completed in the, in the ancient Olympics, right? So the idea of resting on your laurels is, is that you, is that you um, stop pressing forward toward what you can achieve because you're stuck basking in what you've already achieved. You're resting on your laurels. Well, I already have the wreath. And it gets dried up, and, it gets, and you hang it on your wall. And you, so you stop pressing forward toward what you can achieve because you're basking in what you have already achieved. Paul says with this same image in mind in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, one thing I do, anybody know the next phrase? Forgetting what is behind. Forgetting what is behind and straining Toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ Jesus called me, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that's what it must be for love a constant moving forward, never resting on our laurels, never, never getting stuck basking in what we've already achieved, but forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead. And then within this, this context, Paul moves on to a few specific exhortations concerning everyday life and work. And the catalyst for these encouragements um, seems to come from a need to address <coughs> idleness within the church community. Actually, Paul addresses this again in his next letter with some sterner words. It seems that those he was speaking to here probably were not applying his command. 
And there, there's plenty of people that, that are truly in need, right? There's plenty of people that are truly in need. But what Paul's dealing with, with here is someone who refuses to work when they're able to work and there's work to be had. Uh, sometimes we, we judge too quickly, right? Everyone comes on in hard times, right? Everybody has issues. Everybody has struggles. Anybody, anybody could lose their job. Anybody can go through periods, right? So we're not talking about judging someone who's in a sincerely difficult place. We're talking about someone who's able to work, work is available, and they're like, eh. Someone that we would truly say is, in a sense, taking advantage of the system. Now, some scholars uh, believe, biblical scholars believe, and, and this is admittedly some guesswork, kind of reading between the lines, that, that Paul's emphasis, he has this ongoing emphasis through this letter on the second coming of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And some people, some scholars believe that this emphasis allowed someone, some, some folks to cease working because they thought the Lord's return was imminent and why should we work and maybe we can just sit back and and wait for him. Or maybe even they would say, hey, listen, we're not just going to sit back and wait for him, but we're going to quit our jobs so that we can go do the work of the Lord, so we can go spread the gospel. But can you imagine if, can you imagine if a third of the church just was like, I'm quitting my job, <laughs> and then all of a sudden they rely on the rest of the church to support them through their charity? And it seemed like this may have been the sort of situation that was going on in Thessalonica. And this had damaging effects both inside and outside the church. Uh, inside the church, those who were, who were not working, who were refusing to work, were obviously becoming a burden on the generous in the community. Those who were willing to help and help and keep helping, they were taking advantage of their charity. And when you do that, you're also, you're also taking away from what could be given to those who are really in need, right? In this way, idleness stifles the advancement of love. And beyond this, there's a saying that goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? Idle lips are his mouthpiece. So, so there's also this idea that, that to be idle was stirring up some bad things within the church. Ashley, um, Ashley Stilly when, when Sean came in, Sean asked to hand out the bulletins. He looked, he looked idle, you know, he looked like he needed something to do. And Ashley said, Ashley's like, yeah, give my dad something to do before he gets in trouble, right? That's the idea. Give this guy something to do before he gets in trouble. So now we raised him up as an elder. We're giving you some stuff to do before you get in trouble. But that's the idea, right? Idle hands are the devil's workplace. Idle, idle lips are the devil's mouthpiece. Those who aren't busy with their own productivity become busy bodies in the affairs of others. And, and that affects us inside, but it also affects us outside because, as, because there's always those who do not yet know the Lord that are looking in and going, what are these Christians really about, right? What are these Christians really about? So, so we need to be mindful of, of what kind of witness and testimony we're presenting to the world. So with this in mind, Paul gives a, a, a threefold command. <clears throat> he says, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. So these next few minutes, I just, what I want to do is I want to address real briefly each three, three of these commands, and I, I want to do so uh, by summing them up with a word. 
So first, the first word is stillness. Stillness. Phillips, uh, the Phillips translation um, translates the phrase, lead a quiet life, at, like this. It says, make it your ambition to have no ambition, <laughs> which is interesting. And there, is, there does seem to be that play on words in the Greek. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. Or maybe, or maybe it, could, it could read, and I really like this. Think about this. Seek, re- seek restlessly to be still. Seek restlessly to be still. Now, what does that mean? You know, especially in the context of idleness. Uh, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Uh, seek restlessly to be still. Are we being encouraged to live kind of these silent, uh, quiet, mousy, timid lives, eyes down to the ground, nose to the grindstone? I don't, I don't believe so. In fact, Scripture often tells us that we have to be willing to speak up at the appropriate times. We speak up a lot. It's not always at appropriate times. But there are times that the Scripture says, here's a time you should speak up. For example, uh, Proverbs 31, 8, and 9. Speak up for those who cannot what? Speak for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. There's something we should be speaking up about. Those who are destitute, those who do not have a voice for themselves, those who are poor, marginalized in our society. So what is, but what is Paul talking about here? Laziness of body, laziness of mind, maybe we can even say laziness of spirit, can actually lead to an unhealthy restlessness of body, mind, and spirit. Okay? Laziness of body, mind, spirit can actually lead to an unhealthy restlessness to body, mind, and spirit. Paul, Paul's instructing in the opposite direction of what I think we, we too often see even in Christianity. This kind of intellectually and spiritually lazy, restless spirit that leads us to kind of a mindless, frenzied activity uh, leads us to be fearful, leads us to be inconsiderate, tactless, brash, pushy, arrogant, overbearing. It, you may have heard the phrase, and this is said sometimes even within the church, and I can guess I can get it within its context, this, this phrase, live loud. In a lot of ways, we're told in our world today that we should live loud. But, but sometimes, again, it's, this, it's in this, within this thoughtless, high-volumed, highly opinionated, stressed-out age. And Paul here points to something that's completely different. Eagerly seek stillness. Eagerly seek stillness. A, a calm heart in the storm. A thoughtful, measured approach to life, one that is meek, truly humble, someone that's an agent of peace, a presence of tranquility. Most of you know someone or few people like that, right? They're good people to be around, aren't they? Just an agent of peace. A, a, a presence of tranquility. Someone, someone in which their <clears throat> outer life 
is reflecting that their inner life is listening to a voice that says, be still and know that I am God. I always think I'm going to put Dave Four is a great example to me to this. And I, I'll say that. I know Dave wouldn't want me to say that. But he's just, to me, he's one of those guys that's just, he's still. He, he's, he's, maybe that's unfortunate, Dave, I'm sorry. But it just, I just thought he was someone that came to mind. That I said, no matter something that seems really tough, really high, really low, he's like, hey, man, be still. <laughs> know that he's God. Stillness. Second, this isn't a word. I, I had a hard time thinking of a good word here, but the word I came up with is non-meddling, non-meddling. So it's tied, tied in with this, this type of quiet life. Paul uses this expression that's a lot of times in our culture used with a little bit of a tood, right? Mind your own business, right? So I actually like this cartoon. <laughs> I like the peanuts. She believe, she, he's talking about Lucy. She believes in butting into other people's business. And Lucy says, everybody's entitled to my opinion. Hmm. Now, how do we apply this to the Christian life? Mind your own business. If, if the good Samaritan minded his own business, the poor Jew that was mugged on the side of the road might still be laying there, right? What is he talking about? This is not a discouragement toward relationally getting involved in others' lives or having the courage to enter into sometimes the mess of someone's life or someone else's difficulty. It's not talking about a love that, that has, uh, at times has to speak hard words. It's in, it's in, instead, it's discouraging this prying, tickling-eared, gossiping, busybody that if we're honest, lies at some measure within all of us. This prying, tickling-eared, gossiping, busybody. A, ten a tendency that, if we're honest, has, has exponentially uh, been encouraged in our age of social media. And I think as Christians, we have to learn the discernment and the humility to know that not everything is ours to know. And not everything is ours to repeat. And not everything is ours is to speak into. We must refuse the temptation to be busybodies and gossips and backbiters. Those who fan the flames of slander and animosity and division. And again, that doesn't always happen just with a, have you heard about so-and-so? Sometimes it's a, well, we need to talk about so-and-so. And it's really for their good. But again, if we check our heart, is it? We must push back against the temptation to stick our nose where it doesn't belong. I really think we're encouraged as if our, we, every place, our nose belongs everywhere. I'll stick my nose wherever I want. And, and it, Paul's saying, mind your own business. Don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. Don't stick your nose where it wasn't invited. Don't, don't shortcut the hard work of the time and, and love that, that it takes to build relationships, just kind of entering in thoughtlessly and telling someone what they should do. Be non-meddling. Mind your own business. Lastly, diligence. Stillness, non-meddling, diligence. 
Instead of the idleness of body and mind and soul that can lead to this, to us to being restless, busy bodies, Paul encourages diligence and productivity. In the early 80s, there was a song lyric that really typified a lot of people's attitude toward work, that great band, Lover Boy. <laughs> From Canada, man, Lover Boy. Everybody's what? Everybody. Yes, you know it. Everybody's working for the weekend. 1981, lover boy. I looked it up. I don't have the album. So it's, it's, like, it's like just the, the, the idea is take 80% of your life and just mindlessly get through the drudgery of your work week so you can get to the fun of what you're working for. The weekend. Been there, right? Just get through the drudgery of your work week, and then here's another work week. It happens to be probably 80% of your life, but just get through it. Everybody's working for the weekend. Just get through it. Just get through it. Just get through it. And then you got the weekend, and Monday comes. Is that, is that what God wants for us? The Scripture encourages us instead toward a purposeful diligence and again, it really should be applied to body, mind, and soul. What we do with our mind, what we do with our, our spiritual practices with the Lord. But Paul specifically encouraging us here, instead of sticking our nose in the business of others, that we should busy ourselves with our own good work. That we should be working with our own hands. And Paul isn't saying that every Christian should be a manual laborer. But he's instead encouraging every believer who is able not to be a workaholic. <laughs> that, that could, that's a whole other teaching, right? Not to be a workaholic, not to disobey the Lord in, in denying yourself rest. But instead to be industrious, to be a, a responsible worker, no matter the task. And what is really neat here is Paul, and the way he does express this, he, he, he's speaking into a culture here that would have looked at manual labor kind of down their noses and thought, that's work for slaves and that's work for servants. And what Paul does is he elevates all work, even, even manual labor, even the work of the, the artisan class. He elevates all work that's done with diligence unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So listen, if it's the Lord Christ you are serving Monday through Friday, you're not working for the weekend. You're working for Jesus. <laughs> And, and the beautiful reality here is that when we flip the script of, of kind of idleness toward diligence, we go from taking advantage of others and giving the church and Christians a bad reputation to the very work of my hands becoming a tool to advance love and advance the ministry toward others. It frees up resources. <laughs> Even my own resources now that I can be generous to those who are actually in need and to the work of the kingdom and to the work of the gospel. And it glorifies God 
As people know, I'm a follower of Jesus. Even the care I take in my work can go far in what Paul says, winning the respect of outsiders. So it's so neat here. We can say, so bus drivers, right? What do we have here? Bus drivers and carpenters and electricians and, and business owners and plumbers and farmers and full-time moms and teachers and engineers and students that we can all say our activity, our work activity during the week, I can work at diligently as to the Lord. And that is a form of love. A form of love to the Lord, a form of love to my community as I'm being a productive member of society, as I'm freeing up resources and giving resources to the work of the kingdom and to those in need. And it's a testimony to others that my life has come under the lordship of Jesus. I don't work diligently just because I'm OCD or because I have this, you know, work ethic that my father taught me, but because I'm working unto the Lord. So how this week, as you enter into this week, can your work be a testimony for Jesus? To grow in Christ is to grow in love for one another. It's evidenced in the everyday mundane rhythms of your life. A refusal to be frenzied and overbearing, but rather to have a quiet stillness in your soul. Stillness. By being non-meddling, Refusing to be busybodies, not sticking your nose where it doesn't belong or hasn't been invited. By refusing to be idle, taking advantage of the system, taking advantage of other people's goodwill and charity, but instead being diligent, productive members of our society, working unto the Lord. Scripture is very practical. (laughs) And here it's very practical. What is my work week going to look like? Monday through Friday. Will it be unto the Lord? Will it be loving to those around me? Will it be a testimony that my life, every corner of my living life, every day walking, living, breathing life, is coming under his lordship? Let's pray. Father God, you've been good to us again this morning because it's your nature. You've been good to us as you have received and inhabited our praise You've been with us. And we pray, Lord God, that, that the meditation of our hearts, the words of our, our li- that are on our lips are pleasing to you, Lord. Lord, our, we have had a time that we look forward to what you're doing in this body and in the life of a new leader. We've heard Rich get up here and share of how you have transformed his life. Even through difficulty and pain, you have used what Satan intended for evil for the good. And we've entered into your word and some really practical counsel with Paul to learn about what it is to be still in a crazy, loud world. What it is to be measured and thoughtful and non-meddling to stop being busybodies, but instead to be diligent and to let that diligence be an expression of love and a testimony that we are under the lordship of Jesus. Lord, continue. May we press on toward the goal. May we not rest on our laurels, (laughs) basking in what was. May we always be pointed ahead, Lord God, heavenward, to which you've called us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.